0: Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. MFR presents three stories from folklore.org. Real Artists Ship, It Sure Is Great to Get Out of That Bag, and The Times They Are A-Changin', written by Andy Hertzfeld, January 1984. By the fall of 1983, We had committed to shipping and announcing the Macintosh at Apple's January 24, 1984 annual shareholders meeting. The failure of the Twiggy disk drive almost caused us to be late, but it seemed like the new Sony 3.5-inch disk drives solved all of our problems. The Macintosh ROM was frozen in early September and sent out for fabrication. All that remained was finishing the system disk and our two applications, MacWrite and MacPaint. The software team worked hard over the Christmas break of 1983. The finder still wasn't finished, and there were lots of performance problems. Copying files between disks seemed interminable. There was a lot of integration testing to do, like cutting and pasting between applications, and testing desk accessories interacting with applications. As the new year rolled around, it was clear that we were running out of time. By the first week of January, the software team was working around the clock, testing and fixing problems. We drafted every employee in the building as a tester. Apple repeatedly bought catered food for anyone who stayed late to test. The software deadline was less than a week away, but things were clearly too buggy to ship. Late one Friday evening, we convinced ourselves we needed an extra week or two, Steve Jobs was on the East Coast, along with Bob Belleville and Mike Murray, doing press for the introduction. We arranged for a conference call early Sunday morning to tell them about the slip. Software manager Jerome Coonan spoke for the team as we gathered around the speakerphone. We were exhausted, and progress was too slow for us to meet the deadline. Jerome proposed we ship a demonstration release to dealers and update all the customers with final software a few weeks later. We thought Jerome was pretty persuasive as we held our breath, waiting for Steve to respond. No way! There's no way we're slipping! Steve responded. The room let out a collective gasp. You guys have been working on this stuff for months now. Another couple of weeks isn't going to make that much of a difference. You may as well get it over with. Just make it as good as you can. You better get back to work. We scored a couple of extra days by virtue of working the weekend and moving the deadline to Monday at 6 a.m. when the factory opened. We agreed to go home and rest up before the final push on Monday. That final week was one of the most intense I ever experienced. Some of us were pausing work to be photographed for magazines like Newsweek and Rolling Stone, which made others on the team feel left out. At times, the atmosphere was pretty tense. Steve was going to New York to present a Mac to Mick Jagger, and he wanted Bill Atkinson and myself to fly with him. I felt I needed to stay in Cupertino to help fix bugs. Friday rolled around. The Finder and Mac Wright were still too buggy to ship. Randy Wigginton brought in a gigantic bag of chocolate-covered espresso beans, which, along with medicinal quantities of caffeinated beverages, helped us forego sleep entirely for the last couple of days. We did release cycles just a few hours apart, re-releasing every time we fixed a significant problem. When a new release was ready, we would all grab it and start testing again. Around 2 a.m. on Sunday night, I stumbled across a bug in the clipboard code. I thought I knew what it might be, but I was so tired I didn't want to deal with it. I tried to pretend that I didn't see the problem, but Steve Capps was watching my expression and knew there was something wrong. I was also too tired to sustain a pretense. He grilled me about the problem and helped me craft a fix since I was too exhausted to do it myself. Around 4 in the morning, we had a release where everything seemed to be broken. Even Mac Paint was crashing, and it was usually rock solid. By 5.30 a.m., we felt we had a decent release candidate where the worst problems seemed to have receded. We focused on testing it as much as possible over the next half hour, before Jerome would have to drive it to the factory for duplication
1: and all of that, although the Mac had no formal test team. We used to say the final software for the Mac had six person hours of testing, which was 12 people for a half hour. <laughs> Literally, uh, the final release was ready at like 6am
0: in the morning uh, or 5:30 it went off at 6am. At first it looked good, but soon someone found a potential showstopper. The system seemed to hang when a blank disk was inserted when Mac was open. The disk didn't start formatting like it should. I realized it was probably hung up waiting for an event, so I reached out and tapped on the spacebar. Formatting commenced. Jerome thought the bug was bad enough to hold up the release, but he left to drive it to the factory anyway, figuring they needed to start duplication, even if it was just going to be a demo release. The sun had already risen, and the software team finally began to scatter and go home to collapse. We weren't sure if we were finished or not, and it felt strange to have nothing to do after working for so hard for so long. Instead of going home, Don Denman and I sat on a couch in the lobby in a daze and watched the accounting and marketing people trickling into work around 7.30. We must have been quite a sight. Everybody could tell we had been there all night. I hadn't been home or showered for three days. Finally, around 8:30 a.m., Steve Jobs arrived, and as soon as he saw us, he immediately asked if we had made it. I explained the formatting bug, and he felt it wasn't a showstopper, which meant we were actually finished. Finally, around 9 a.m., I drove home to Palo Alto and collapsed on my bed, thinking that I'd sleep for the next day or two. However, after about 6 hours, I woke up with a desire to go back to Apple. I wanted to see if the release had held up and see how everyone else was feeling. By 5 p.m., most of the software team dragged themselves back for the same reason. We were lounging around in a tired daze, happy that we had finally shipped, but still in disbelief when Steve Jobs strode into the software area. Hey, pick yourselves up off the floor. You're not done yet. Uh Uh-oh, I thought. Someone must have found a showstopper, but that's not what he meant. We need a demo for the intro. The Mac deserves to have a great demo for its first public showing. I want the Mac to play the theme from Chariots of Fire while it's showing a slideshow of the apps. Plus, lots of other cool stuff, whatever you can come up with. And it needs to be done by the weekend to be ready for the rehearsals. We moaned and groaned about being tired but we started to talk and realized it would be fun to cook up an impressive demo. We were too tired to think about it right away, but when we came back the next day, a plan started to emerge. Caps said he would work on a slideshow of applications and had the idea to scroll the name Macintosh across the screen in a gigantic font. Bruce Horn wanted to do a starry night with twinkling stars and a skywriter writing Macintosh in cursive across the night sky. Susan Kerr worked on a graphic of the Macintosh sitting in its canvas carrying bag, as well as some graphics for the slideshow part. I integrated all the pieces and signed up for the music part since no one else wanted to do that. It's... Difficult to write a music editor and player in two days, but I managed to put something together that could actually play the Chariots of Fire theme. But it didn't sound very good, since it used simple sine waves without any envelope shaping. I'm sure you're dying to hear what that sounds like. We don't have any artifacts from Andy just yet, but here's a rendition from MFR. Mind your ears. Steve immediately rejected it as lousy, which it was, and opted for using a CD of Chariots of Fire instead. Meanwhile, Mike Boych came by with Mark Barton, a developer we had seated with an early Macintosh. Mark wrote Sam, the software automatic mouth for the Apple II, a speech synthesizer with a distinctive winning personality. With some help from me on the sound driver portion, Sam sounded even better on the Macintosh because we had 8 bits per sample and a higher sampling rate.
2: 68 and software.
0: When Steve heard Sam talk, he immediately decreed that we had to incorporate Sam into the introduction demo. I want the Macintosh to be the first computer to introduce itself he insisted. He told Mike Boych to cut a deal quickly with Mark so Apple could bundle the speech generator, rechristened Macintalk, and use it in the intro. Since my music generator fell through, I got to do the speech part. I knew I wasn't clever enough to be the Mac's speech writer, so I think it was Susan Kerr that had the idea of asking Steve Hayden, Chiat Day's head writer, to do it. Hayden had conceived the 1984 commercial and was as clever as they come. He got excited and finished the job overnight. Once we assembled all the pieces, the demo didn't even come close to running in the standard 128K of RAM. Fortunately, we could cheat a little by using one of the two prototypes of a 512K Mac we had in the lab. January 24th. 1984. The big day had finally arrived. The project had gone on so long that it didn't seem real. We were excited, of course, but also nervous about our hastily contrived demo code and still exhausted from the final push to finish the system software. I helped set up the demo during that weekend's rehearsals, which were fraught with problems. Apple had rented a powerful video projector called a Light Valve. It projected the Mac's display larger and brighter than I thought possible. However, the Mac had to be connected through a special board that Burl cooked up to compensate for the Mac's unique video timings. The Light Valve seemed to be quite temperamental, taking eons to warm up and sometimes shutting down inexplicably. Steve wasn't into rehearsing very much and could barely force himself into doing a single complete run-through. The software team didn't usually come to work until after 10 a.m., but on the morning of the big day, we gathered in our fishbowl office in Bandley 3 at 7.30 a.m. Together we walked to the Flint Center, half a mile away. We arrived at the cavernous 2,500-seat auditorium early. It was already filling up, and soon it was packed, and then it was standing room only. The software team sat in a section of the second row reserved for Macintosh division employees. Finally, the lights dimmed, and Steve Jobs appeared at a podium on the left side of the stage. He was resplendent in a finely tailored black suit, complete with a prominent bow tie, looking more like a Las Vegas impresario than a computer industry executive. You could tell he was nervous as he quieted the rousing applause and began to speak.
1: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Apple's 1984 Annual Shareholders Meeting. I'd like to open the meeting with a part of an old poem about a 20-year-old poem by Dylan. That's Bob Dylan. Come writers and critics who prophesy with your pens, and keep your eyes wide the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin, and there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser now will be later to win, for the times they are a-changing.
0: He thanked Apple's board of directors individually, by name, for their support in a turbulent year, and then turned the meeting over to Apple's chief counsel, Al Eisenstadt to run the formal part of the shareholders' meeting. Al ran through some procedural stuff and then introduced Apple's CEO, John Scully, hired just nine months ago for a business report. John reported on Apple's latest quarter, which saw disappointing Lisa sales more than balanced by a fantastic Christmas for the Apple IIe, whose sales had more than doubled from the previous year. The crowd seemed distracted, impatiently waiting for the main event. Scully seemed to sense that and hurried through the bulk of his presentation. Finally, he concluded by thanking Mike Markula and the executive staff for supporting him during his first few months at Apple, thanking one individual in particular.
2: I said I'd introduce the exec staff as a group, but I would like to single out uh, Mike Markula. I really owe a lot to Mike for uh, bringing me into Apple. And I think that uh, it's important for everyone to know the uh, great job that Mike has done. Because I think when someone follows someone else, you get to see uh, what what your predecessor did. And I don't think we could have gotten as much done in such a short period of time if Mike hadn't built the foundation. And one of the reporters asked me, what has been the most important thing that has happened to you in your life since you, you joined Apple Computer? And I thought about it, and I'll tell you what the answer was. The most important thing to me that's happened in the past nine months since I've been at Apple has been the chance to develop a friendship with Steve Jobs. The two of us have had tremendous challenges together in in leading this company. And uh, I think the rapport that we've developed and the friendship that has resulted uh, to me means an awful lot. Steve is our co-founder of Apple Computer. He's a product visionary for this industry, and it's my pleasure now to reintroduce Steve Jobs.
0: A mysterious canvas bag sat near the center of the stage. Steve reappeared on the left side of the stage as the lights dimmed again.
1: It is 1958. IBM passes up the chance to buy a young, fledgling company that has just invented a new technology called Xerography. Two years later, Xerox is born, and IBM has been kicking themselves ever since.
0: The crowd laughs as Steve pauses. Steve had cooked up this spiel for the sales meeting in Hawaii last fall to introduce the 1984 commercial. I had seen him do it a few times by now, but never with as much passion. Intensity and emotion dripping from his voice.
1: It is 10 years later, the late 60s. Digital Equipment Corporation and others invent the mini computer. IBM dismisses the mini computer as too small to do serious computing and therefore unimportant to their business. DEC grows to become a multi hundred million dollar corporation before IBM finally enters the mini computer market. It is now 10 years later the late 70s. In 1977, Apple, a young fledgling company on the West Coast, invents the Apple II, the first personal computer as we know it today. IBM dismisses the personal computer as too small to do serious computing and therefore unimportant to their business. The early 1980s, 1981. Apple II has become the world's most popular computer and Apple has grown to a $300 million corporation, becoming the fastest growing company in American business history. With over 50 companies vying for a share, IBM enters the personal computer market in November of 1981 with the IBM PC, 1983. Apple and IBM emerge as the industry's strongest competitors, each selling approximately $1 billion worth of personal computers in 1983. Each will invest greater than $50 million for R&D and another $50 million for television advertising in 1984, totaling almost one quarter of a billion dollars combined. The shakeout is in full swing. The first major firm goes bankrupt with others teetering on the brink. Total industry losses for 1983 overshadow even the combined profits of Apple and IBM for personal computers. It is now 1984. It appears IBM wants it all. (laughs) Apple is perceived to be the only hope to offer IBM a run for its money. Dealers initially welcoming IBM with open arms now fear an IBM-dominated and controlled future. They are increasingly turning back to Apple as the only force that can ensure their future freedom. <laughs> IBM wants it all and is aiming its guns on its last obstacle to industry control, Apple. Will Big Blue dominate the entire computer industry? The entire information age? Was George Orwell right?
0: The crowd was in a frenzy. The 1984 commercial, which had run during the Super Bowl just two days ago, filled the projection screen of the auditorium. A young female athlete stormed into a gathering of futuristic skinheads, threw a sledgehammer at Big Brother and the scene imploded in a burst of apocalyptic light.
2: On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like
0: 1984.
1: There have only been two milestone products in our industry. The Apple II in 1977, and the IBM PC in 1981. Today, one year after Lisa, we are introducing the third industry milestone product, Macintosh. (laughs) Many of us have been working on Macintosh for over two years now, and it has turned out insanely great. (laughs) And we are introducing Macintosh at a mainstream price point of $2,495. And Macintosh, to accomplish this, uses a 68,000 microprocessor, the same 32-bit microprocessor used in Lisa. It's necessary for Lisa technology, and it eats 8088s for breakfast. (laughs) Macintosh comes with 192K bytes of memory. 64K bytes of ROM contains the entire operating system, the whole graphics foundation, and the entire user interface, all contained in ROM. There's 128K bytes of RAM. Just as the five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive was an innovation in the 70s, the three and a half inch disk drive will be the disk of the 80s. It is far safer and we're storing over 400K bytes of information on one side of a disk that can be put in your pocket. And it communicates with you on a high definition, super crisp bitmap nine inch black and white screen, which has over twice the number of dots on its screen of any current generation personal computer. You have to see this display to believe it. It's incredible. And all of this power fits in a box that is one third the size and weight of an IBM PC. (laughs) You've just seen some pictures of Macintosh. Now I'd like to show you Macintosh in person. All of the images you are about to see on the large screen will be generated by what's in that bag.
0: Steve walked over to the canvas bag and opened it up unveiling the Macintosh to the world for the very first time. He pulled it out and plugged it in, inserting a floppy disk. The demo started, with Susan's graphic of the Mac hidden in its carrying bag on a curtain stage, displayed while the program pre-computed Cap's big scrolling letters. Suddenly, the music swelled from a CD not generated by the Mac, and Cap's giant Macintosh banner scrolled across the screen. Next came Bruce's Skywriter, and then screenshots of applications, including Microsoft's Multiplan and Chart. Finally, the music stopped, and the screen went blank while the demo waited for Steve to press the mouse button.
1: Now, we've done a lot of talking about Macintosh recently, but today, for the first time ever, I'd like to let Macintosh speak for itself.
2: Hello, I'm Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag. Unaccustomed as I am to public speaking, I'd like to share with you a maxim I thought of the first time I made an IBM mainframe. Never trust a computer you can't play. Obviously I can talk, but right now I'd like to sit back and listen. So it is with considerable pride that I introduce a
1: man
0: who's been like a father to me, Steve Jobs. Pandemonium reigned. Steve had the biggest smile I've ever seen on his face, obviously holding back tears, overwhelmed. The ovation continued for at least five minutes before he quieted the crowd down. The rest of the meeting was an anticlimactic blur. Steve ran through some marketing material and introduced new versions of the Lisa. He ran a slideshow tribute to the Mac team with voiceovers from the most important contributors. Finally, he turned the meeting back to Al Eisenstadt to announce the shareholder tallies and complete the formal portion of the shareholders' meeting. As they departed, Everyone in the audience received a copy of the first issue of Macworld Magazine, featuring Steve on the cover. Most of the Mac team hung around near the stage, waiting for the crowd to disperse. After we returned to Bandley 3, we were surprised by a large truck that pulled up in the parking lot. It contained 100 brand new Macintoshes, one for each member of the team, personalized with a little plaque on the back. Steve presented one at a time to each team member with a handshake and a smile as the rest of us stood around cheering. We were so keyed up that it was impossible to get back to work that afternoon, but most of us didn't want to go back home either. Macintoshes were supposed to go on sale that very day. Five or six of us walked to the nearest Apple dealer, but they didn't have any units in stock and said they weren't for sale yet. The next dealer we tried was willing to sell me one even though he didn't have any units in yet either.